0: Welcome to the second episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael Cravens and I'm your host. Now, before we get into today's discussion regarding hunting recruitment in America and why it's so important, I want to give a couple quick updates. Uh, The first of which is we are in the midst of a 30-day public comment period for the Arizona Game and Fish Department's 2023 through 2028 hunt guidelines. That comment period runs from July 1st through July 30th. So don't miss this opportunity to be part of the process. Uh, Check those guidelines out if you have critiques, criticisms, concerns, or if you just appreciate science-based wildlife management, please reach out and let them know. But it's important to let them know at the right place, otherwise your comments won't count. So email them at azhuntguidelines at azgfd.gov. Now my second update uh, is regarding our premiere episode that aired two weeks ago with uh, our executive director Scott Garland and our president Brad Powell. We told you in that episode all about who we were at Arizona Wildlife Federation. So in that conversation, Scott was telling you about our Becoming an Outdoors Woman program. This is an award winning program. one of those awards just last year well, in the heat of conversation, Scott glossed over exactly what it was, and it's a big deal, so I wanted to, uh, to make sure we are clear on that. The Becoming an Outdoors Woman was inducted into the Arizona Outdoor Hall of Fame by Wildlife for Tomorrow. So again, big deal, so I wanted to make sure we were clear on that. With all of that, I hope you enjoy this episode on hunter recruitment. Hunter recruitment has become just a little bit controversial uh, recently, but the truth is it's it's vitally important. This is how we fund conservation. This is how we have people that are tangibly connected to the outdoors who will speak up and stand up to protect these places that we love so much and this wildlife we love so much. So Give this episode a listen. It is thoughtful, it is interesting, and it is, it is important. With that, enjoy. Welcome, gentlemen. We are here today to talk about Recruitment, retention, and reactivation in the hunting space. I am sitting here with Douglas Burt, R three manager for the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and Jess Warner, Arizona Hunting and Shooting R three coordinator for the National Wild Turkey Federation. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Hey guys, how y'all doing? Hey, how's it going?
0: All right. Well, let's get right into this. Um, as we all know, well, maybe we don't all know that. Um, you know, a lot of us we we go out in the field. Looking for solitude, looking for for big animals, and a lot of times we find find other hunters. So, so this might not be common knowledge to everybody, but we have an issue uh, in our country, and that's that's hunter recruitment. Um, I would put it this way: hunters and anglers fund conservation. Uh, that that's not news to anybody. I don't think at this point, but hunter numbers have dropped throughout time. You know, the more our society becomes urbanized the less hunters we have so therefore we have folks like these two fellas uh, to combat that try to bring hunters back into the space so let's start before we get into all that and figure out who we're talking to here let's start with you Doug where you come from how would you get into this how would you end up with the department
1: yeah it's a it's a it's a long tail well I'm not originally from Arizona but I've been here for almost 35 years I'm originally from Michigan I was not raised a hunter Uh, or really an angler, I didn't start until I came here. Oddly enough, I'm one of the few adult onset hunters, which is weird giving myself a label like that. Um, But uh, the recruitment and retention aspect of my job came, again, later in life. Um, I was actually a public information officer with the department and then this position opened up and I really enjoyed that work, working, um, sharing the good words about the outdoors, recreational activities that are available in Arizona, which is extensive and amazing, um, especially coming from the Midwest and coming out here to the desert. Um, and I've been doing it for about 11 years now.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Doug. I'm glad you're here. You've been described to me as a, it was either either an R3 machine or an R3 monster, but I think either of those are probably fitting.
1: <laughs> I don't know where those are coming from. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's an <clears throat> interesting Arena that has a lot of technical terms and a lot of abbreviations. Like R three is actually my position wasn't called an R three position ten years ago. It was just hunter recruitment retention, um, and and like you mentioned earlier, that um, how hunting is or how wildlife conservation is funded. It's primarily funded through the sale of licenses and tags. Almost every state in the union is is solely funded that way. There are some states that have some excise or some state general taxes.
0: Yeah, like um, Missouri, where I'm from. Are they? States.
1: OK. <laughs> yeah, there's a number of southern states that actually have a, a part of the general tax fund. Arizona is not done that way. Um, and, and as we get further, um, it's well beyond hunter recruitment, retention, reactivation is, is beyond just the dollars of, of, of fundraising, not fundraising, but generating funding. And it's well beyond just getting people out hunting it actually goes one step further which is tied exactly with what you guys do with Arizona Wildlife Federation which is conservation of species and habitat and and that's how that that work happens is that funding so it's a means to the end for making sure that we have a full plethora of wildlife uh species in the state of Arizona and the United States for everybody to enjoy whether they hunt or not and 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 that's that's a that's a hard dynamic to have that conversation with some folks. I think that it's solely for hunters, by hunters, for the need of hunters, and, and it doesn't really translate that way at all. You just have to go deeper into that conversation.
0: Right, right. I agree. Yeah, you you opened up a whole can of different subjects there that we'll definitely dig into here as we go along. Uh, but before we do, Jess, how about you? Where are you from? How would you get into this line of work? And, uh, you know, what, what are your own personal interest in the outdoors
2: uh so like just about all arizonians i'm also not from arizona <laughs> uh, it seems like the four out of five is me here aren't even from uh anywhere near but um i'm originally from new york state i'm from the northern part of new york so i grew up uh 30 miles from canada uh you know i was i was kind of joking around i i i I moved from the French-speaking border to the Spanish-speaking border. Is pretty much all I did. Um, growing up in border country, uh, I've been an outdoorsman um, all my life. Uh, my dad jokes about, you know, when I was a kid, I wouldn't sleep uh, uh, unless I was being carried outside. Like they used to have to do like laps in the yard, like listening to the the, the, the crickets and the and the uh, spring peepers and all that, just to get me to go sleep. Um, uh, I remember he, one of his favorite stories is that, you know, I helped drag my first—drag being quotations—my first deer when I was three. Um, so I've, I've always been around the outdoors. Uh, and as far as, like, how did I get here, um, I moved here for another or a different job. I moved to Arizona four years ago, uh, going on five, uh, to do a wildlife biologist position. Um, did not enjoy that position. Um, but I found a new avenue through mentorship. Um, I, I got hooked up with, fortunately, through the Outdoor Skills Network. Uh, there was a pint night here in the state of Arizona um, by, I guess, what, now my predecessor, Ryan Conat, did yeah. it. Uh I attended that um, with, with uh, some friends. Um, had an absolute riot and got hooked up to the mentorship. And just found a passion. I I enjoyed seeing other folks enjoy what I've always enjoyed, uh, if that makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. that's um, how I got into it. And then just one thing led to another, and I was fortunate um, that this job was able to open up. And somehow uh, I'm sitting where I'm sitting now, and I can't say I'm any happier than I already am because it's – it's a dream come true, and it's it's uh, just glad to be here for the most part.
0: <laughs> That's great. I, I'm certainly certainly pleased you found yourself in this position as well. Um, so, kind of like you fellas, I'm not from here. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Missouri, but uh, I came to Arizona quite literally for the diversity of habitat and the diversity of wildlife. I mean, I, this has been my driving force my whole life. So, I came out here only meant to spend a couple of years. Ended up, you know, having babies, uh, getting married. Um, The roots just got deeper and deeper. So this is home now, Uh, and I'm very happy for it. But you know, my my interest in R three stems from the fact, uh, you know, it largely it's it's kind of selfish. I love this stuff. I've loved it my whole life. I want to continue to have it. I have children now. I want them to have it, you know, into the foreseeable future. And. Something I, I try, at least a personal philosophy of mine, and I try to explain it to, like, non, non-consumptive non or hunting and angling friends of mine is, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of well-meaning people, um, well-meaning, environmentally-minded people that don't hunt and fish, and they still want to protect, conserve, preserve wildlife and wild places. Those people are wonderful, and I commend them. But the truth is, there's not enough of them to get the job done. Um, That's a small slice of the pie. A big old chunk of that pie is hunters and anglers. And, you know, when I think back to all them good old boys in Missouri that buy their deer tags, you know, once a year to go out hunting once a year, we need those guys. And a lot of those guys, they're not gonna care if they don't have that tangible connection. We need people to have a tangible connection to wildlife and the outdoors. So we need hunters and anglers. Therefore, for me, that's where R three comes in personally. You know that that's that's why. You know, you know. While I'd love to go out hunting every time I go and have the place to myself, um, that's not realistic, and it's not realistic if I want to be able to continue to hunt into the future. If I want my children to have these same things that I have. So, Doug, you mentioned ten years ago this wasn't even called R three. How how long has this this issue been on the radar?
1: Actually, I've was given a, um, a document when I first started this position. Uh, actually, I think John O'Dell gave it to me. Um, but it's dated 1990 from uh, an ad hoc work group through all the state fish and wildlife agencies. It's a Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Basically, that's just a representative of all the Western states discussing wildlife conservation issues. And our old director, <clears throat> Duane Shroff, who used to be the director of Game and Fish for close to 20 some odd years was actually the the chair of that and they were looking at numbers. Uh, There's a a survey every five years uh, that collects total numbers of hunters within the continental United States and they were seeing declines back there in 1990 um, and it's taken, you know, Many years before it really became an active process, and I think it would have been early mid-2000s, mm-hmm. 2003, four or five, and then the Arizona Game and Fish Department uh, chartered a, a, a team to investigate what the barriers were, what were the reasons, and to start identifying some, some repairs and fixes to what we are seeing in the state of Arizona. So um, it actually established a position that I hold right now. Um, and I think we were one of the first states to have a. a it was a HRR coordinator, is what it was at the time.
0: Okay. So I mean, what do you think is behind that that change in uh, hunter demographic? I mean, is it just a, a byproduct of an earth you know a more and more urbanizing population?
1: Yeah, it's it, there. There isn't a single thing, um, but there you know there are a bunch of common things that go across the board and many other aspects not just hunting. Um, Social circles are getting smaller. Uh, Social clubs and social organizations have declined. Um, Urbanization, dual house incomes, lack of time, lack of access to the outdoors. Not necessarily lack of access, but a, a change in, in living environments, like you talked about, mm-hmm. being more uh, suburban or urban-like versus uh, the discussion that you guys are both from more of the woods, right? And, and that's becoming rarer and rarer. Um, and I think it's just general awareness, you know. It, it, back in the, the 50s and 60s, We needed those supplements, right? We are, you know, living off the land a lot more than what we were. There wasn't this globalization that we have today where, yeah, you can order anything online right now from anywhere and have it in your, hopefully on your door in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And that didn't exist before, right? You know, you can get fruits and vegetables that were never available to me when I lived in Michigan.
0: yeah. Well, Doug, you you describe yourself as an adult-onset hunter. Um, Me personally, you know, uh, I I came from a a single uh, parent household. I was raised by my mom. But fortunately, I grew up, I was on the edge of a small town. Um, So my childhood was was spent, you know, making daily excursions off into the farmland around my house and exploring and figuring things out on my own. And, uh, you know, I, I finally... Picked up a pellet gun when I when I met a, a neighbor boy whose dad took him hunting and, and that's what kind of got me started. We started chasing squirrels and did so for m- many years afterwards. But Jess, how how did you come into all this?
2: Uh, I guess it's uh, into R three or into the hunting, I mean,
0: just into hunting. I mean, did did you have a father figure or an uncle? Yeah, my dad. Ropes?
2: My dad is was and still is my driving force when it comes to the outdoors. Um, like I said, I mean he. <laughs> like uh, I remember, like I said, when I was three, um, like I wasn't going as much because he still wanted to be able to, you know, still harvest game. You can't do that with a three-year-old on your side as much, um, at least back then. And but he would come and get me um, if he put one down, and you know, I'd help drag it out, kind of thing. Like I said, I, had, uh, I, mo- I was mostly using the deer as a sled, mm-hmm. but it's it's always been there for me. And it was I was fortunate that he never pushed me towards any of it. It was kind of one of those things that I latched on and wouldn't let go of the hunting. Like, I remember when I was, like, 10, I would get uh, – I was going to cuss there. I was going to – I'd get TO'd, ticked off a little bit, <laughs> because he would hunt. He'd go hunting, and i you know, i had to be home or doing homework or whatever. And, and uh, um, I always just wanted to be out in the woods. And the same thing, uh, like you said, growing up, um, even in the, in the summertime, I'd be out. Uh, we had a trout creek right by the house. Um, I'm catching speckled or tr- uh, uh, brook trout. Um, you know we had uh, grouse. Was, that was back when the grouse were still plentiful. Uh, so in the fall when I could, when I could go hunting with them, I, uh, started right out squirrel hunting, grouse hunting. Um, of course back there they call them potridge instead of instead of grouse. I had to pick that one up in college, but uh, it's it's just always been. It, but I also grew up in a small town uh in like in northern new york where hunting is just a way of life Mm um you go to the store uh and at least two or three people are you know in in full camel getting ready to go Mm -hmm. to deer camp or um i can't say i didn't have a choice because a lot of my schoolmates didn't pick it up Mm -hmm. um but just as many of them did yeah so it was just always always apart and then yeah i've just been able to work through it and uh expand you know it's um i've been fortunate to look now i'm out here in arizona doing things that my grandfather could have only dreamed of like chasing elk around the muggy and rim yeah you know it's stuff that you know it's all whitetail hunters back home and to think that i get to do this on a almost daily basis is just kind of unreal
0: right you know uh, a quick side note here i think sometimes you talked about your dad leaving you behind uh on occasion and and i think they're I think that can be a good thing. I take my boy with me a lot. Um, I do leave him behind sometimes, uh, but primarily when I'm off on a big game hunt, backpacking, or something. But um, I, I think you know having that that separation, that that mystery to it for a little kid yeah. can can matter. I, mean, I think obviously it's just as important to take them out in the field with you and, and have that time with them. But but yeah, sometimes I think maybe maybe it's better to leave him back and, and you know just just wanting it a little bit that, more. You know,
2: yeah, kind of kind of get that keep that let that fire kind of smolder mm-hmm. a little bit and, but I mean, he did a lot because it was, he was a tree stain hunter almost yeah. first and foremost. Um, and he grew up as a coon hunter, mm-hmm. uh, chasing, you know, following dogs through the woods, hunting raccoons back when the fur prices were high. Like he has, he always said, it was back when a, a dog could feed itself just on, you know, if it ran enough raccoons, it could pay for its own food. And then, you know, dad could make a little bit of gas money off to the side. Um, so like people always called him the monkey. Like I, I can climb a tree that, like, <laughs> you know, a baboon would hesitate to go up. And so he would put up his tree stands accordingly, because it's it's back home. Um, it was a mixture of private and public land, and you would get guys that also can show up and you know somebody that's not supposed to be there is in your tree stand. So dad got really good at putting stands up that nobody else was going to get into. Like I remember <laughs> he had one. He had to jump from one tree to another. Go up 10 feet and then jump back into the first tree. <laughs> um, I learned to get into it, but that's not something you're going to take a 10 year old to.
1: Sure. No. Um, now we know why true stand harnesses were created, right? Oh, uh-huh. this, yeah.
0: You yeah. know, it's there, there's certain. This is old school. <laughs> there's certain necessity to, to live in a life that takes work um, that you know, I feel like we're losing. God knows I am. You know, I sit in a desk all day. Um, but, you know, I, I go down to, to Central America or, or, or South America and, you know, 40, 50 year old men, you know, they can shimmy up a tree to grab mm-hmm. coconuts or to pull a monkey or bird down they shot up there. It, it's nuts. And yeah, I don't feel like I can do that now. And it's, it's unfortunate, you know, that our, our sedentary lifestyles have led us in that direction. At least some of us anyway, maybe not everybody. But all right. So uh, back to our three. Um <laughs> So much like Jess, I'm going to assume that the majority of people, at least up until now, maybe even still now, have been introduced to hunting by father figures, uncles, things like that. And this brings me to a point. I'm curious of your. I'm curious to your opinion on Doug. Um, I think R3 was aimed at children for a long time, and I know a lot of it probably still is. But then how I understand it, it's kind of come to our attention. that's like, you know what? Most of these kids that, that that we're focusing on are kind of already there. They already have access. Um w- Would you think that maybe we've spent too much time on that and maybe we should look at other direction, other demographics?
1: Well, you said it earlier, too, actually. It's like, you know, I go hunt with my kid. I want to make sure that's available to them. That is where everybody's mindset goes when you start fearing things, right? A fear and a loss. You know, Jesse just gave an example of how he grew up. He's going to carry that as he gets older. It's like, I want my son or my daughter, my kids to have, right, similar experiences. So you're always looking back. Mm -hmm. We're all fathers here with the exception of Jesse. But you have that connection where, you know, It's my job to make sure that I bestow at least a a, a livelihood or or Mm -hmm. a childhood um, for my kids the same that I experienced because I experienced, and there's things that I liked about that and I want to share it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was where a lot of things started. People were seeing gaps in license trends and seeing declines, and we were thinking, we're going to lose a generation. So when you start thinking in those frames, you're like, the next youth, Model is what comes up from that, so um, so I think that's where everybody went to, right? That was a natural transition. Um, where was I going with that? But for Arizona, one one of the big things about that is. Everybody could get behind that. everybody meaning the hunting outdoor community they all aligned mm-hmm. with recognizing the next generation. and that's where we started putting our, our, our efforts into in Arizona and uh, that happened nationally as well. but there, there's a lot of good efforts in across multiple demographics, age groups, um, societal uh, interests and things of that nature that are happening now. And I think we're seeing a better balance of that. Um, I don't think one's better than the other. I think you need a a mixture of everything to be able to service the community and service your state. Um, I say that as a a state representative. So I'm always thinking at scale, like Mm -hmm. the state of Arizona I'm paid to represent all constituents within the state of Arizona. So, um, I have a really hard time with just doing, um, micro communities or, or uh, micro audiences. So that, that's where I come from when I make those statements. And I know um, you can put three more people down here and we'll have a disagreement on, should we be focused on youth? Should we be focused on young adults, college students? Or should we be looking at uh, you know, female demographics in a more uh, parental ro- uh, role? So um, I think you need to be doing a little bit of everything.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that full-heartedly. I, and one thing that we we do kind of see, uh, especially with the youth events, is how many of the parents get into hunting because the kids shows interest.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, if, if I can. Um, we use the terminology youth recruitment. Um, in, in Arizona, I think with most programs, they're not youth only. The season, structured by the Game and Fish Department, might be you have to be a youth to have a tag to hunt. But when we do recruitment events or retention events, um, it's with the full family. You can't, it's not camp. You don't drop your kid off at a hunt camp for three days deer hunting, right? It's, you know, mom, dad, and typically there's a sibling brought along or, or, or some other family member. So um, the neat thing about doing youth events or family events is what I like to term them is you're reaching a whole lot more than one. You're reaching mom and dad someone else within the family, they're all having that shared experience, and they're all hopefully learning some of those skills to where they can replicate them on their own or at least have developed that interest where they can continue those pursuits, right? Mm -hmm. Versus like uh, your kid participated in something in gym class at school. That's a sole youth educational event. Mom and dad don't know what happened in gymnasium that day, right? They didn't experience, they didn't see the the gee whiz that goes with it to, to actually go, yeah, that, that sounds like something we should all do as a family versus when we do our, our family recruitment events that are youth hunts everybody's there, they're camping out, they're driving up together, they're seeing the same seminars or they're learning from the same folks, like folks from the Arizona Mm -hmm. Wildlife Federation or many of the other conservation groups in Arizona. So I I detoured a little bit on you, but um, I I think you need a whole complement of if you're doing doing true R3 recruitment, which is early introduction, Mm -hmm. awareness, and maybe a one-time trial. Retention is... The glue. (laughs) Retention's where everybody's struggling with right now because anybody can do a first-time event. Retention is continuation, trying it over, doing something different, um, developing a habit, right, and developing the skills that go with it. That takes multiple experiences.
0: Right, right. Well, I agree with you. Um, I definitely think a a holistic approach to this is the right way to go. Um, Clearly, there's a lot of kids that don't have... You know, didn't have the opportunities Jess had. Um, and right. Didn't even have the opportunities. You know, I, I may not have had a dad to take me out, but I had access. You know, right across the right. street. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of kids don't have that. Um, shoot, I, I taught for a number of years uh, high school biology, um, inner city, and man, those kids. You know, on the outside looking in, you'd think of oh, what a bunch of uh, ruffians and hellions. But when you get to know them, they're all great individuals. Mm-hmm. And if you could pull those people out of their, you know. I don't want to say terrible, as in all urban is terrible. Um, there's plenty of wonderful urban centers, but um, they they lived in bad ones. And if you could have plucked them out of those and put them in a good place, right. they they would have flourished. And they were curious. When I talked about the outdoors, when I talked about hunting, you know, they were all ears. Those kids just don't have those opportunities. So, nor I,
1: the perceptions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree.
2: That's a huge part of it, right there. It's perception.
0: You want to explain that a little bit?
1: I I. I. Sure. You actually mentioned something earlier you are talking about, um, you know, I always wanted to have this outdoor activity and this hunting and these mm-hmm. traditions that I grew up with or that Jesse grew up with. I came to him later in life is for people that are not part of that community, the perception is that it is, whether you're you're recreating or not, that wildlife will always be there. Wild places will always be there. And that's just not the case anymore. Wildlife takes Active wildlife management, it's done by, in charge by all state wildlife agencies mm-hmm. in the United States, both in and Canada and Mexico. Um, and it takes active management. You can't just leave wildlife populations alone, expect them to, to flourish. Matter of fact, there's examples where they didn't flourish back in the early 1900s. Um, and, and, and you almost have to tell that story with people in an audience that might be different than us right before you say we'll recruit more hunters because that that looks like a take right versus a um a system of conservation or a system of um, preservation and maintenance and making sure we have healthy species and habitat
0: yeah you know uh, you you bring up a good and perhaps we're we're building on this thing in the wrong direction. We probably should have talked about the model of of conservation here in North America first. Um, So let's get, let's do that. But before we get into that, just to stay on this train of thought, um, you know, regardless, we talked about kids and the importance of of getting kids in and, you know, how, how to give them these opportunities. And you know, that's kind of work you do, but uh, you know, I guess I should start by saying, and I don't think I'm mistaken, please correct me if I am, but, but, you know, hunting has largely belonged to, Older white males, um, or I should just say maybe white males. Yeah, because they
1: weren't older when they started, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? Okay. They're, about, they're they're older now. How
0: about now? I think I read some numbers. It's primarily like 40 years old plus and white. Yeah. Um. So when 40 I, years ago. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> well, when I go outside uh, here in Arizona, that that's not what I see, you know. Right. Um. And so. You know, Hispanic community here in Arizona is largely underrepresented in the outdoor or or sporting space. Um,
1: In the proportion that it is demographically within the population.
0: Correct. So that coupled with, you know, women being the largest uh, growing hunting demographic today. um, And, you know, I've seen in the last couple of years, and maybe it's only because I've been paying attention in the last couple of years, but a large movement, a large push to kind of get out of this, this white male space, and, and I'm a white male. I yeah. <laughs> I got nothing against white males. Um, but to largely, you know, this doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to right. us as a demographic. It, you know, wildlife belongs to everybody in our country. Um, so I, I like seeing this. I, I like seeing this this ideology, I, I, ideological change. You know, there's a lot of people coming into this space that, you know, they don't care about, you know, 350 inch bull elk mm-hmm. you know they just want to go shoot some rabbits and take them home and cook them um, they, they don't care for gripping and grins and which I love gripping grins but that doesn't mean everybody has to um, but they
1: don't know what any of that is that you just said because mm-hmm. they haven't grown up around that yeah. environment what a th- what is a 350 elk I mean even that terminology alone can lose mm-hmm. half of the room in that conversation or when you start talking code talk that they're like oh you shot
0: an elk mm-hmm. Why? (laughs) Yeah. But what I'm referring to is the demographic that has largely been hunting, um, being open and welcoming to these new folks in these new ways. Mm -hmm. Because we need them. We need them to care about wildlife. You know, we need them to care about habitat.
1: I think that has changed tremendously over the last 20 years. That was not the case back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that was societal roles. I mean, look at all the changes that we're seeing right now in society is things that were norms back then are have been identified as they're, they're not good social norms, right? Mm-hmm. Dad and uncle went to the hunting camp. Like I'll start talking Midwestern here, right? They had uh, a cabin somewhere in the woods and that's where they got to get away from family to do guy things. Right. And we've had lots of uh, ladies at some of our, um, our, um, public think tanks and discussions about recruitment and retention. And there there's gals on it goes, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not from a hunting family. I just didn't go. Cause I was, I was a girl and that was what the guys did. You know, I was interested, but it just wasn't open to them. Um, call it discriminatory or, uh, isolation or whatever it turned out to be. And, and, and that's kind of flipped over quite a bit. <laughs> gals are highly engaged yeah. in outdoors, very interested in skill development, very interested in um, sustainable and having the means to get things for their family, right? Right. You know, your mom's been in charge of making sure that we're all fed, happy, warm, and clothed, right? It, it, transla- it translates very well into, you know, yeah, I I can go – hike this mountain i can go do these things and i can bring home something that i know is, is good and healthy for my family and what a great sense of pride for anybody regardless of gender right
0: right right yeah you know it's it's funny i live in a bit of a constant state of guilt because my my boy he's got the same praetor i i do you know he will he will go all day long you know fish without a bite i still have to drag him back to the truck at night um so you know, I, I have my social media stuff, and it's always pictures of me and my boy doing stuff. Yeah. Um, my girl, <laughs> it's not for a lack of trying. I, I we drag her along all the time, um, but yeah, she's just she doesn't have it. She's yeah. great in the outdoors. She'll sleep on the ground. She'll get dirty. She doesn't complain. Um, but yeah, she could care less about pursuing yeah. anything. So, yeah. uh, and I also, you know, I question myself that you know. Is that just her or or do I have preconceived, you know, ideologies that I'm not even aware of? And, that's and, what
1: I was going to interject yeah. is I don't think that's a gender specific. I think that's a DNA thing. And, mm. and you know, I know boys that have that same one. It's like, yeah, this is great, but no, I don't want to shoot a deer. Yeah. I've had stories with people that I work with, that, like, I don't know if I'm doing a good job as a dad. You know, <laughs> here I am, the R3 court or mm. manager at Game and Fish. And, you know, I can count on one hand a number of times. You know, my son and I go hunting. We just, you know, he has a different busy lifestyle. You know, I'm not, we don't hunt every weekend. We have not gone deer hunting every time, right? Yep. And and that's, you know, those aren't gender things. I think those are just, what do you have in your lifestyle? What interests you? And, you know, putting a label on it can sometimes be too much for dad to handle. Yep. How old are your kids?
0: Uh, my little boy just turned nine the other day. He got his... Uh, for his birthday, he graduated from a pellet gun to a .22 long rifle. Nice. Um, so yeah, we just went out and shot that. Oh, just yesterday. Um, and uh, he, he's he's you know I I am I am a Nazi about safety. Yeah. Uh, I mean I mean I just don't fool around <laughs> with it. Uh, I value my family way too much <laughs> and myself way too much. But um, so so I'm I'm bringing him up right with the gun thing. I hope uh, at least I'm I'm definitely checking all the boxes. But but he's very comfortable. He's a hell of a marksman. Although. He doesn't miss, but he'll take fifteen minutes to take that shot yeah, there too. So, yeah. so when that transfers over into actually pursuing animals, we might struggle a little bit. But they tend to not hold still for you like that. But, uh, my little girl's six, and uh, oh, okay. Yeah, like I said, she's been raised in the outdoors. She's used to it. She's I, I I I call them durable little children, and I'm proud of the fact that they're they're very durable. Uh, they don't complain. They sleep. You know, they sleep on the ground under the stars. And but uh, but yeah, she doesn't care about catching fish or, or shooting yeah. animals. Yeah. They're but, young, boy. They'll, they'll eat anything I bring home, though. Huh? In fact, they 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 quarrel over who gets the hearts of just about anything, whether we squirrel, really? quail, yeah, yeah. But again, they've been raised eating that stuff. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's. Um, I know it's taken a step backwards, and we've certainly touched on it here and there. But let's uh, let's go a little bit deeper into our model of conservation. Um, you know, and how conservation is funded, why it needs to be funded. And I'll start by saying, a 100 years ago, almost, well, I don't want to say almost all, a a large portion of the animals that we call game animals and consider abundant today, we're we're nearing extinction. Um, Whether it be elk, uh, waterfowl, um, deer, you know, back east where deer are are so plentiful today. Just in my lifetime, it's unbelievable the amount of deer in Missouri. It wasn't like that when I was a kid. We had to work for it. But, um, you know, you drive through St. Louis today and you're going to see deer. Um, It wasn't like that 100 years ago. All all of these animals were damn near gone, um, or at least at at risk of being so. Uh, And today they're abundant. Um, You know, we hunt these animals. Millions of Americans. Hunt them, bring them home, feed their families with them. So how is it that that we've brought these animals back from the brink of extinction while still utilizing them as a resource.
2: I think the, the so you're talking about the North American model of conservation. So Correct. with that so what that does in my opinion is it, it it's not an opinion it's just the way it is it, it's the wildlife is the the public's resource. And the reason this is important is you know comparing it to other places that hunt namely Europe and Africa you know where it's a totally different mindset on on their models of conservation where it, it is th- it's almost down to the individual person or even outfitter to how they're going to manage their their wildlife so to put it on the in the on the public with the game and fish agencies being in the public trust it puts a whole new spin on on the importance of the wildlife themselves and one of the ways that we do this, and I'm probably hitting this, I, I'm getting a little bit scatterbrained on us, but uh, is we put, an imp- just with humanity, we put an importance on animals that we have direct connection with. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably misquoting this, but I almost think it was like a Teddy Roosevelt quote where if you wanted to preserve a species, you should hunt it. Where, like you said, the species that we hunt, they're the ones that came back. Um, Like, take the white-tailed deer. They were, in my grandfather's day, seeing a track would get you the newspaper. Nowadays, there's 20 million of them, white-tailed deer specifically, uh, within the lower 48 of the United States. It's unreal how much, but it's because we put a precedence on preserving them because that's what... We have that tangible connection to We had that connection. And and it's happened the same way... um, with, with elk, like you said, with elk, we extirpated them from two-thirds of their range. Um, e- the whole eastern half of the United States, it was gone, mm-hmm. um, or they were gone. And then now we're in the midst of bringing them back through relocation. Uh, I mean, was it two years ago, Arizona sent like 75 elk to West Virginia. Yeah,
0: yeah I think um, Missouri had their first elk hunt maybe two years ago.
2: Exactly. And But even Arizona, they were extirpated from Arizona. We got our elk from South Dakota. You know, and then we've gotten to a point that we have so many of them
0: mm-hmm.
2: that we're able to send them back to someplace else. You yep. know, it's it's been and the same thing with Kentucky. To, the Kentucky was the first state in 1997 to get reintroduced elk, and now they're sending elk to other states mm-hmm. to, to for for relocation um, and to reestablish these populations. Um, granted, they're not the same subspecies that were there. Like we're, we're introducing Rocky Mountains in Arizona in place of Miriam's and. Um, uh, and doing the same thing with Rocky Mountains in place of Easterns because they are the most abundant of of the subspecies. But it's because hunters step, took a step back and said, we want these here. So the way that they're funded, um, I forget if we mentioned this already, but we, we talked about um, license sales. Mm-hmm. That's... But a lot of the funding for this conservation is coming through what's known as the Pittman-Robertson Act. Mm -hmm. It was passed in 1937, which was a big year because it was the same year that Ducks Unlimited was formed, which they were doing the exact same thing with waterfowl. But through the PR funds, what what that was was it was manufacturers of hunting goods saying, we want to fund conservation. So what they did is they went to Congress and said, we want to do this. So Congress enacted the PR fund, which puts an 11% excise tax on select hunting goods. The reason I say select is because a lot of the goods we use nowadays weren't around in 1937. Right. So you're talking guns, ammo, archery tackle, um, not fishing tackle. That was the Dingle Johnson Fund. Mm -hmm. Um, But through what this does is it brings at the federal level funding that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then distributes to the to the, the various uh, game agencies throughout the nation,
0: mm-hmm. and those are state agencies are the ones that are tasked with managing the wildlife for their state.
2: Correct. Yeah, it's the state agencies that are are doing their state wildlife in the public trust. Mm-hmm. Um, just like so, down here AZGFD is uh, handling wildlife for Arizonians. Right.
0: Yeah. To simplify it, wildlife in, in the United States is owned by us, by the public. By the public, um, yep. Now, there's all kinds of philosophical arguments that could come with that, but that's, those are beyond the point of this discussion. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. A, it, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a rabbit hole into itself mm-hmm. right there. Wildlife is owned by the public. Um, the states are, are tasked at managing that wildlife for the public. Indeed. Correct.
2: Yeah, so, but what this does is it provides, and there is some pushback on it because it, with it because this comes from uh, PR funding, which comes from $100. Mm-hmm. A lot of places will get almost accused of putting a priority on what they call hook and bullet sure. um, yeah. conservation. So, but where I don't see an issue with that is that we are utilizing these, the management of these species as an umbrella figure mm-hmm. for other species. So, the reason what I'm talking about with like an umbrella is one species. I guess the best way to describe this is you have um, many what we call critter groups. You know, they're conservation, non government organizations, NGOs, that are formed in the protection of a certain species or uh, group. So, mm-hmm. like Ducks Unlimited is for, they're not just mallards, you know, they're all ducks. Mm-hmm. But then you have like the Rough Growl Society, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Arizona Elk Society, um, which is a state version, or not a version, but a state level NGO versus, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which they do everything, our um, uh, coast-to-coast management, uh, conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is, say, like we'll use the Rough Growl Society as an example. So... Cross populations across the country have been declining, and they're in, and we don't fully know why. We've said habitat, habitat, habitat. Um, it might be disease. Um, it might be something like the bird flu. Uh, uh, West Nile virus gets thrown around a lot as far as because it's they're saying that it's a uh, uh, they're not doing being able to recruit through mm-hmm. chick mortality because if an adult can make it or a chick can make it to adulthood. They're not susceptible to West Nile, but other chicks, it's just extra. It's almost extirpating entire broods. Yeah. So we're um, but through say managing for rough grouse because of their habitat requirements, so like the Rough Grouse Society is doing, you're you're able to benefit so many other species, especially non-game species, that hunters don't directly, they might not directly have an interest in it because you cannot harvest them but they're still seeing all the benefits of habitat preservation or conservation. Um, So you have your songbirds, your amphibians, like your salamanders, small snakes um, that are are reaping these benefits because hunters are interested in grouse.
0: Sure. Yeah. um, You know, a couple more examples to go along with that. Let's talk about the Elk Society here in Arizona. Um, Now, the Elk Society, they might not, you know, it's probably not part of their, Goal to, to benefit Mexican gray wolf reintroduction or, or efforts in Arizona. Uh, but I can tell you, without the efforts of the Arizona Elk Society, the habitat and the food base would not be there for those wolves. So okay. those are just two big megafaunal examples of, of, yeah, how, you know, $100 going into wildlife management. And I will say that $100 don't just go into managing for game species. They, they go into management for all species. Correct. But, um, you know, sure, uh, there is attention paid to some of these, these species that we have have connections to and care a great deal about. And and yeah, lots of other species benefit from that as well. That's not an argument against non-game management. Uh, I'm absolutely a proponent and a fan of all kinds of non-game animals. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's there and you can't ignore it. You know, it matters. Um, you know, this model of conservation we have to, to simplify it to its purest form is, if you're going to take something from our, 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 a portion of our wildlife, let's say, you're, you're going to pay for that. Um, and that money goes directly back into, you know, management for those species, for that habitat, for these wild places. That doesn't matter if you hunt and fish or just camp and bird watch. That you're absolutely benefiting from. Doug, you got something
1: to add? I do. Okay, please. <laughs> Floor's yours. Jump in. I had a thought, and then you said something I wanted to add to that as well. But um I, I think to 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 oversimplify the the conversation started off as you know there I remember a time when there wasn't a lot of deer in Missouri, and then actually now they're all over the they're place and, and and you know what significant thing that um, listeners that may not be a part of the hunting community the 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 overarching thing that happened nationally was uh self regulation and then state wildlife agencies started to pop up in the 20s and mid-20s. Um, and that became regulatory season dates, mm-hmm. bag limits, and basically active wildlife management, which goes back to the conversation I was saying earlier is, you know, people think that things are always there, will always be there. And that was, that was not the case until um, conservationists, hunters, and non-hunters that were conservationists that were concerned about wildlife species and habitat loss is really big back then as well um and and self-regulated at that point and started saying look there's only a certain type of deer that you can hunt at a certain time to make sure that wildlife populations can either remain stable they can grow or we can dec- or decrease them based on what the habitat is available and and that's a constant changing formula um a lot of people, a lot of people say, "Well, uh, uh, you guys don't manage for these species." And my old boss told me, "He goes, everything is regulated. Every wildlife species is regulated in the mm-hmm. state of Arizona. Some have robust um, availability and, and resource use, and some have zero resource use mm-hmm. whatsoever." So um, that that was the the big curve in bringing wildlife populations back to what we're seeing today. Obviously we're dealing with a whole cadre of stuff that we didn't see a hundred years ago with, you know, more habitat loss and, um, uh, changing temperatures and, and drought conditions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, but before it was, it was people and lack of regulatory, um, Active management that was causing, you know, white-tailed deer, turkeys were, turkeys probably the Cinderella story in the room, right next to white-tailed deer, right? And and waterfall as well. Um, And we have all those. Arizona didn't have any turkey. Now we have three wildlife, uh, wild turkey in the state of Arizona, three, three different species so right you're saying uh, three species not three turkeys correct no there's there's way more than that so um for for people that don't conservation is such a complicated word it's like saying you know advertising and marketing or social media you know what part of it are you really talking about um but for for the constituents the, the public trust people in the state of Arizona the wildlife is theirs mm-hmm. and thanks to stuff that took place over, almost a hundred years ago I'm Actually, I was just looking at the numbers. I'm actually going to be able to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Pittman Robertson. God willing, that I you know I make it another 15 years. But it's <laughs> it's not out of the realm, right? A uh, hundred years of wildlife conservation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did the Dingle Johnson? did that come along with Pittman Robertson?
1: It, it was after, I believe it was in the 50s. Okay. Yeah. It's like yeah. 53 or 54. Yeah, or 54 like that. pops in my head. And,
0: yeah. 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 So ultimately, what it comes down to is hunters, anglers, shooters. And boaters pay for conservation in this country. Um, now, there are things like I should probably mention uh, the Recovery in America's Wildlife Act uh, that passed the House just recently. Um, if if we can get that to pass Senate and, and become a law, our Arizona Game and Fish Department stands to gain up to $31 million. Um, and that's primarily going to be focused at non-game species. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be primarily focused at those species of, of greatest concern. Right. Um, the aim is to keep species off the Endangered Species Act, which is, is costly, and it creates issues for lots of people. So if we can if we can recover these species before they get to that point, better for everybody, better for our economy, better all the way around. Um,
2: right, try to be proactive rather than yeah. reactive.
0: Yeah. And, you know, going back to that, hunters and anglers paying for the bulk of conservation, that will take – pressure off of those funds. And that will allow those funds to, to maybe put be put back towards game species, the species that, you know, these folks are primarily concerned with. Uh, so that would be a great thing for everybody. So if you have an opportunity to call your representatives and your senators and tell them about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act and the benefits that it will, it will have for Arizona, I think uh, we will all win for that. So um, let's go to so, you know, we're coming well oh God, I must say we're coming out of COVID. We're not coming out of COVID, unfortunately. But that first year of COVID, we saw increases in, in outdoor user groups like like nothing we've ever seen. So, you know, we as humans tend to see the world with blinders on. Um, we tend to only pay attention to what affects us. Mm-hmm. We struggle with nuance, we struggle with right. big picture. What do you say to those hunters that are frustrated uh, with, you know, going to spots that they've had to themselves for for years, and now they get in there and they see a couple other guys in there? <laughs> what do you say to those guys?
2: That's public land. It's it's public land hunting. It's it's. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can. There are certain tracks that, you know, we go to that we we see as a honey hole. I mean, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot for. In, in the in the hunting realm is a honey hole. It's like your little secret spot. Yeah, fishing
0: too. Fishing
2: too. Yeah, um, but if somebody else was willing to put the work in, they have just as much right. It sucks. Don't get me wrong. I've <laughs> rolled up and seen another truck rolled. It, I'm not gonna lie. Like you know, it's 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 competition. But that's the way it goes. That's, that's part of that's part of hunting in the public space.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know we're we're blessed in Arizona. With, I think somewhere around sixty percent, over sixty percent public, public lands. Area. And and I'll be completely honest with you. That's why I live here. Yeah, that's why I'm going to raise my kids here. That's why I'm not back in Missouri. Um, you know, so, diversity of habitat and public lands. So just the, for if anybody listening is
2: familiar with like New York State, like mm-hmm. cause New York's a is a big state. I always thought it was a big state. You know, it's not Texas. It's not, it's not Texas, but if you take a map of New York, right. And you have the border that comes across Pennsylvania, and then it drops to the south, so you, it encapsulates the Catskill Mountains and then it heads down towards uh, the big apple. Mm-hmm. If you were to go from Pennsylvania that straight line southern border and just chop off the bottom hat the bottom portion of New York, what's left of the balance north of that line that is equal to the public land hunting in Arizona. So you have pretty much the 80 percent of new york state at your disposal
0: isn't it wonderful
2: it's unreal how much land analogy
0: um all right so i I have two answers for that one (laughs) is
1: a state of arizona hat and then obviously there there's the me right joe doug the hunter right how i feel about that um but uh actually probably three um did you ever do anything right the first time you did it? Like, you know, when I went dove hunting for the very first time, I probably looked like a slob dove hunter. I mean, I came from Michigan. I didn't wasn't raised around firearms. Someone introduced me to it. I probably wasn't a really good shot, and I probably wasn't really good at wildlife identification. I suspect I shot other things that weren't dove, right, during dove season, because you just don't know. And if I roll up on me now, 35 years later doing that, and I wasn't there to have that conversation. I go, look at someone, you know, left this or, you know, they left their shells. I didn't know you were, or, you know, whatever it might have been. so uh, when you look at through your own lens of being a seasoned hunter and you see something that's not replicated what you're replicating, remember that all those people that came out during COVID as the only outlet, right, were just trying things new and they might not have known what Right, the the right way of doing things. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do it right. They were very, very enthusiastic, yeah. you know. Yeah. But clean up, um, returning the forest back to good health, and, and and being good stewards, they didn't know that, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That that's a great attitude. Your
1: kids starting yeah. to learn what a steward. Like I knew not to litter because mm-hmm. my dad would smack me in the back of the head because oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Michigan during a time when you know we couldn't swim in certain rivers because. It was okay to dump nuclear water in Lake Erie. They didn't realize that you shouldn't do that in the seventies. Um, so yeah, we you know that's where deposits came from for bottles and stuff like that. I still don't know why Arizona doesn't have that because we see garbage and cans and stuff that could just be recycled and get your money back. Right. So so there's that analogy. I'd ask tolerance, and with tolerance has to come education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of what our statewide program is, our Outdoor Skills Network program is, is to teach people that don't know to learn the right way of doing things so they can be better for it. Um, provides an outlet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give everybody a pass. I know there was a lot of it last year. Um, and then also recognize that these might be the people that are going to be running Arizona Wildlife Federation Who's been around for almost 100 years now, right? You're mm-hmm. a year before the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Yeah. Um, so, you know, invoking that, that passion for wildlife in the outdoors, that, you know, hopefully they saw something that, that we can build on, right? We can educate, form, and shape and model, and they can become the next stewards of the next 100 years. Because if you don't go and you don't care, you won't take care of it. That's, you know, that's the big concern. Um, I did not get out and do much hunting last year, so I didn't run into anybody really in my. I, I just didn't get out. It was a it was a, a horrible year for me, so um, I, I was close to home during all of 2020. So I didn't see that experience. I did, I did try to get a camping spot at like Lake Pleasant or any of the park oh, systems. Yeah, that you happen. know, unless you yeah, booked it, it two years in advance, it wasn't happening. So that was probably my biggest frustration. So. All
0: right. Well, first of all, yeah, I I want to reiterate, I appreciate that attitude. Um, And, you know, I think we should all work to have an attitude like that. Um, I will say that I I try and practice that, you know, in a lot of our work, uh, or at least my my work with Arizona Wildlife Federation, I'm down at the legislature a lot. Um, You know, we're keeping our our eye out for bad public land bills, bad wildlife bills, bad habitat bills, also good bills. But, you know, we as an organization are, are firmly Bipartisan. We, we do not see conservation as, as a partisan thing. You know, conservation is an everyone thing. So we work on both sides of the aisle. And That's a bumper sticker, I think. <laughs> <laughs> conservation I, is I'm an I'm pretty sure I didn't thing. make that up. I didn't mean to interject. Who knows, maybe. But, um, you know, I, I have my own political opinions. Yeah. I have folks I like and folks I dislike. Right. Um, you know, but as far as my work goes, that has no place there. Uh, so I try to always keep in mind... No matter how vehemently I disagree, I think I may have said that word wrong, but no matter how much I disagree with someone, I'm willing to bet that they are trying to do the thing that they think is right and good. Um, And I try to keep that attitude no matter who I talk to. There's there's very few, I guess, truly evil folks out there that want to do bad. Most people think they're doing good, whether it's for themselves or for everybody. They're they're trying to do good. And I try to keep that uh, mindset in in my work and when I'm speaking with people. But, um, so anyway, I commend you for that, Doug. I think it's a good place to be and, and it's something we should all practice. So let's, uh, you know, I guess ultimately to wrap that up, you know, <clears throat> looking at the data, if you have a hunter, and Doug, this is primarily for you, if you have a hunter that is really frustrated with the amount of folks he's seeing in the woods and says, hey, look, you know, Doug, we don't need R3 anymore. Why are you still doing right. this? How do you answer that? I mean, what are the long term trends that we're looking at? What are we trying to avoid in the future? That's a good question.
1: You know, the story I say, you know, the th- first three answers, throw those away and get to the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, uh, there's a couple of pieces of that. One, your favorite spot is always going to change. has to the place that i used to go dove hunting i live three blocks away from it's no longer a dove spot right i miss that dove hunting spot you know it's the same of having people there um what did you say there's 65 almost 70 percent of public land in the state of arizona Yeah. Uh, obviously depending on the species that you're hunting what what areas those get smaller um you know you got to keep looking you got to keep diversifying and find that new there's always another spot right Mm -hmm. um And chances are, it wasn't your spot to start off with. Um, The guy that taught me how to duck hunt, you know, I think is my spot, but, you know, he showed me through email and I met him hunting one time and I was hunting in his spot for years to come. And who knows if he ever seen my truck in his spot one time, you know, if we lost connection or whatever. So uh, I'd say that you don't have a spot that everybody has (laughs) equal access to spots. Um, And... again it gets back to the conservation of things is um, access is a big part of wildlife conservation the state department does uh, we actually get money specifically just for maintaining public access into these different areas either public land or easements and things like that to get to uh, uh, we have a lot of um, landowner relationships where we're allowed to hunt on on leased land it might be public lands but it's it's Least out to a ranch or something of that nature, um, and, and that's all by good advocacy. That's a hundred dollars, uh, a hunter conservation model. Uh, the 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 more people are speaking on behalf of wildlife conservation, the use of the res- responsible use, both legal, safe, and ethical use of the resource, um, is a win across the board. And if we get to a point where where that number becomes even lower than what it is, I think it's less than 6% of the population of Arizona is considered a, a hunter. I'll just do with hunters just because that's my forte. I don't do a whole lot with angling. I'm getting there. Um, that's a small portion of the voting public. <laughs> that's a small portion of the populace, and that's way outside of what the public societal norm is. So um, what happens if that becomes 1%? Mm-hmm. and that, and And the dynamic of that is it's not necessarily fewer hunters it's just an increase in population the state of arizona i've been here for thirty five years i I remember when we got the four million, and you know now it's almost seven seven million right? Mm-hmm. So you know the influx of way more people with not the awareness of our public lands, our wildlife conservation, our wildlife resources, you know we start looking like an anomaly. And, you know, do you want to see deer species, you know, decline because we've given up, you know, uh, maintaining those rights to lands and making sure that we're keeping healthy populations. I, I, think that's, I think that's the big one. That's a hard thing for people to digest when you're like, dang it, I pulled in, I wanted to go archery deer hunting, and, I, you know, I had my Saturday all planned out, right? I just mm-hmm. gave you global stuff related to the state of Arizona, probably for the next 100 years versus, yeah, but my Saturday hunt was screwed up. I've been working the last 14 days and someone's in my spot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll add, especially speaking directly uh, to the first year of COVID and, and what that did to outdoor recreation, you know that that's not a long term trend. That's simply mm-hmm. a data point, and, and that's the end of it. That yeah. we don't expect those numbers to stay that it, high. It's already shifted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what kind of drop have you seen in, in like license and tag purchases?
1: So I'm the I'm the worst person for stats, yeah. um, but I know that license sales have not mimicked twenty twenty at any stretch of the imagination. Okay. I know we had some twenty to thirty percent increases uh, in different verticals, uh, fishing license, and then. Uh, hunting license were slightly behind that. And, and they're not on the same uh, trajectory as they were for mm-hmm. 2020. So yeah. um, the, the big game draw, you talk about uh, the draw application, which is uh, the lottery system for getting uh, limited permits for big game species. Um, that continues to maintain a, a sustainable trend um, Arizona is the place to go. If you want to go out hunting, you want to go cows, whitetail, deer hunting, um, we're, we're in high demand for big game species. Yeah. And, and it reflects in that.
0: that. That brings up another point that I think we would be remiss without, without mentioning. Um, and that is that hunters are getting, they're getting better. Um, they're hunting in more states. Um, you know, we, we have more out, uh, non-residents coming into Arizona hunt. We, you know, we have more people leaving Arizona to go hunt in Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are traveling to hunt now. Um, and we have YouTube and social yeah. media. Um, you know, it's, it's become a glamorous thing, you know, to go backpack hunting, you know, to my dismay, cause I've been a backpacker my whole life and that was kind of my thing, you know? Yeah. Um, that's not anymore. Everybody's doing it. So people are going farther. They're working harder. They have more information available to them. So. You know, even even if—I uh, can't say—I'm going to screw this up. Uh, I was going to say if, if hunter numbers are falling, um, you're still going to see more folks in the backcountry because people are working harder to get there. And then we have the side-by-side conundrum as well. We have folks— driving off-road vehicles all over the place now, yeah. going deep into the backcountry. And that that's a whole other topic for a whole another podcast. But so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a nuanced thing. Uh, but ultimately what it boils down to, as uh, much as it might be frustrating sometimes, we need people in the backcountry. We need people utilizing these resources so they care about it. You know, and they're there to fight for it. And they're there to put money into it, you know. so
1: Yeah, and I'll just reiterate it that, you know, it's a lot easier to educate and shape someone that's enthusiastic about something than it is to someone that is, uh, we, us, they, they, they could care less, right? It's someone that doesn't care about the outdoors, doesn't care about getting dirty or going and seeing wildlife. It's going to be really hard to convince them that it's important to, to, to maintain those things versus someone that embraces those, right? Mm-hmm. And. You know, I didn't even know you're an educator. So, from an educating background, you know, someone that comes to class is a lot easier to teach math than someone that just never comes to class, right? So, you got to have someone, you have to have some clay to work with. I think that's the same with like uh, young employees, right? They don't come in with all the ingredients. But if you give me someone that is enthusiastic, passionate, might not know what the heck they're doing. I can teach what the heck you're doing, right? But I can't teach someone to come to work enthusiastic and positive (laughs) and energetic every day. I don't have to do anything with Jess, right? I just show them the -hmm. model that we use in Arizona for R3, which is generally unique. But I don't have to get them up every morning and say, hey, are you – feeling positive about what we're doing, you, you've heard from the guy. You know, right, I didn't know right. he was riding deer when he was three years old. You know, uh, I learned some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whitetail he, surfing. You know, we're we're totally opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh-huh. I just told you I'm an adult onset hunter. His dad's been taking him hunting since the day he was born, probably. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't remember from age one to three. So that's, that's a pretty good
0: compliment, you know.
1: Yeah, I would agree.
0: For that's sure. a good point. Well, let's see. As Jess did, I think I was introduced to, to the work that you do through um, a HOG meeting. You want to talk about HOG and, and how, yeah. you, how to get involved in all this stuff? Sure,
1: sure. So so HOG is an acronym.
2: Yeah, it's not sus <laughs> <laughs> it, uh
1: It's the Hunting Angling Heritage Work Group, so H-A-H-W-G. It's pronounced HOG like the species or right. the animal. Um <laughs> And, and basically what that is, um, it's a non-entity basically, it's, it's nothing, it's, um, it's people of like-minded interests that come to the table and we figured out one, right, what, what was the story, the guy goes, you just got to figure out the one thing in life, right, you know, what it is, for, what is it, it's different for everybody, mm-hmm. right, so... Arizona Wildlife Federation, you have your charge, your advocacy, and the particular things that your, your organizational structure is based on. Jesse brought up some other conservation groups. Yeah, I'm, I'm species-specific. I want to make sure that the elk are, are plentiful in the state of Arizona or wild turkey want to be plentiful. So they all have their different alignments. And when we started talking about declines and the big conversation we had today of why that's a concern all the different representatives of these groups were able to find that one commonality, which was our hunting heritage. Right, species and habitat, making sure that it's here. When all the hard work that I've done, it's here for my 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 children, my children's children, and and hopefully the kid down the street that I don't even know, and it'll be a benefit to them. So, so basically, just started as a think tank. You know, we just sat down in the woods fold out our camp chairs, start talking about the things that are challenging us, um, what we could do, what we had influence to do, and, you know, it essentially boiled down to people don't have access or don't know what to do. We should teach them, right? We, that's what we do, right? We do fence projects. We do water projects. We take people hunting. You know, I know all kinds of things about XYZ species, right? Um, and that's where hog and the envelope of that became the Outdoor Skills Network, which was basically taking all those efforts, of all those different groups, and centralizing them in one place under the umbrella of the state of Arizona, Arizona Game and Fish Department. So Joe Smith didn't have to know what your website was, didn't know what the Turkey Federation's website was. They could come to one place that was credible, resourceful, right, and we could play the role of connecting them with all the great work that's happening across the landscape of Arizona, um, and and that's been going on for well, we just celebrated 10 years the year before COVID. So we've been doing it for about 12 years. I've been in this position for about 10. So uh, over the course of that, we've probably that organization has probably done close to 500 events, reached tens of probably over 10,000 people. And most of these are learn-how-to-hunt events. You know, you'll come to this camp, and you'll have to have a deer tag, and we'll teach you how to deer hunt. We'll come to this camp, and we'll teach you about quail hunting. So they've been doing that effort for, yeah. And long before I was here, they were doing it just under different acronyms and yeah. models and stuff like that.
2: I probably should add to that it's, it's, it's just in case folks don't realize right off the bat, you said we've got to have a deer tag, is there's different levels of the OSN. So you have introductory, beginner, uh, intermediate, and, and advanced. So it's like so the introductory is like if, if somebody's just showing an interest, like um, they they saw something on YouTube. I, th- I think I want to try mm-hmm. that. I want to try something. Going easy, I want to try uh, turkey hunting. I want to try uh, uh, javelina hunting. I want to try. I'm, but I'm interested, but I don't want to go out and do it yeah. just yet. So Part of the OSN, instead of being camps, we also have stuff like seminars um, where somebody can come and learn a bit more f- right from the horse's mouth kind of, kind of scenario. And so, all right, so I think this is something I actually want to do. And then so they go, so that's an introductory. The next one, well, now we're doing a beginner. Now they're going to go to the OSN and see, well, who's doing a Havelina uh, a camp or who's doing a quail camp, who's doing mm-hmm. a small game camp. And then they can sign up from all the myriad of options there and then it just provides a ladder of sorts. Of how do they go from pure interest right through the our uh, uh, recruitment model? Um, the ORAM, the outdoor recruitment. Now I'm, i forget the. I got too much uh, energy drink this morning. Yeah. yeah, I the just call it. The, I
1: just call it the adoption <laughs> sequence. Yeah, the adoption.
2: They <laughs> can move through the adoption sequence, mm-hmm. um, and you know, ending with the culmination that they consider themselves a hunter and that they're going to keep doing it other and then hopefully they'll go out and you know become mentors themselves because they know they've been through it already they, yeah. so they're going to go back um but it is I just want to add that it's more of like step ladder so it's not just you show up once it's there's a right. whole sequence you can go through To go from day one watching YouTube to, you know, it's Mm -hmm. I'm a hunter, this is what I like to do.
1: Yeah, you don't have to jump right off and go deer hunting. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. It's not yeah, you're not just stepping off from the deep end. You you have a chance to to get there. Yeah.
0: So for folks who are either seasoned hunters who have listened to this podcast and and their their eyes have been opened, they see this problem, they want (laughs) to get out there and and make a difference now and contribute to this, this whole thing that we all enjoy and love so much. Um, two people that are mildly interested um, and just want to get their feet wet. Um when, you know, as Jess was referring, OSN Outdoor Skills Network. Mm-hmm. Um, would just a Google Arizona Outdoor Skills Network be a good place to start? How do folks get to this place? Yeah. How do they get involved?
1: Yeah, the the easiest way is az, <clears throat> excuse me. Is azgfd.gov slash outdoor skills. Um, and you can search Outdoor Skills Network Arizona and now pull up. Um, and that, that uh, has great information for seasoned hunters, beginning hunters. Um, I'll link to all the events that we were just talking about by the different skill levels that Jesse just made reference to. And uh, some good other resources and things of that nature. Basically, I'll walk you through the basics of hunting in Arizona and where do I fit in and, and, and where mm-hmm. can I get information based on where I'm at.
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll add a plug for um, Arizona Wildlife Federation's program becoming an outdoor woman yep. as well.
1: It's on there. Um mm-hmm.
0: it's an unbelievably successful program. Uh, you know, my boss Scott refers to it as the, uh, you know, YMCA for for adults. Um That's a good tag. Yeah, That's a good yeah, one, <laughs> yeah. Um but the the main difference is they serve wine. Um but but it's it's an opportunity. They they have so many different programs. You go out and you go on a multi-day. I'll call it a camp, but but usually you're staying you know in a dorm or cabin somewhere. And there's rock climbing. There's wild game cooking. There's just all of these different opportunities to learn these different skills. You know, um, for for women who are going to be more comfortable in a group of just women. Um, and then that program has been so successful that it's hard to get into now. So we've started a new one called Bridges to Bow, and that's primarily aimed at young and and diverse minority uh, groups of women. Um, so, so it's trying to get into some different uh, demographics, um, provide an opportunity for younger girls to get involved, and, uh, boy, that's really gotten off um, at a great start as well. So anything we've left out here, gentlemen? I was just going to
1: tie that... Um for your listeners, there this is the thing that we always hear after we have this conversation, or you meet someone and go, I didn't know about that. Oh, I didn't even know those things existed. Is know this. There are a ton of outdoor recreational activities happening on the landscape in Arizona. Bo, um, the outdoor skills network, while it is primarily focused on hunting, we also have uh, a plethora of everything. are so we're, we're doing fishing events now um, we have all kinds of educational wildlife educational activities and then there's stuff that that we haven't enveloped under the outdoor skills network just because it's 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 self-voluntary uh, there's probably 30 or 40 different partners that are involved with it so it's pretty extensive um, there's more people for us to go get um, and if someone's listening to this and they're interested in wildlife they're interested in outdoors it's out there. Do a quick Google search, contact the Arizona Wildlife Federation. They've been a staple of the state for doggone almost a hundred years. Rep- I, I love the fact that you represent everything, right? You're not just hunting. You're not just fishing. You do outdoor conservation. You do advocacy and, um, you know, take that first step. And then those mechanisms, once you get started to learn from real experts, like, like not tr- some people don't like the word experts, but I'll mm-hmm. say seasoned people that understand um, they're out there and people want to teach people how to do stuff. I know some people read some stuff online, you know, you are in my spot and all that. When you have those direct conversations, Everybody that I know in our community is willing to teach you, show you, help you find a pathway that works for you in the outdoors and and whatever pursuits that you might have. So um, take that first step, and I think you'll get connected with a community in Arizona that's unlike anywhere in the United States in my
0: my travels. I would absolutely agree with that. The conservation community is bar none, Um, you know, whether it be backcountry hunters and anglers, elk society uh quail forever um you know you name it you're going to find the most thoughtful folks involved in those groups and and these are people you know they're they're not going to judge you you know they're going to welcome you in they're going to show you the ropes um yeah in you know my personal advice if you're interested in in hunting and angling outside of these programs that we've talked about that are specifically for introducing you and in a you know a comfortable thoughtful manner is you know my advice is get involved with those conservation organizations you know yeah. pick a pick a species you're particularly interested in um and if you're not interested in a particular species pick a pick an overarching group um but you're going to find great people and and they're going to treat you well and and you won't regret it
2: yeah i was going to i was actually ex- exactly what I was going to say was um you know get involved uh even if it's just i say just like it's a small thing it's it's a, it's a big thing cuz i think the best way that folks have if they want to learn to hunt, and we're talking about those tangible connections, is a lot of these organizations, they're outside of just the hunting, they're doing boots on the ground, getting your hands mm-hmm. dirty work. They're doing these habitat projects. Um, and it's pretty much all the organization around here, whether it's uh, NWTF, Q. National Water Turkey Federation, Quail Forever, Arizona Elk Society, Arizona Mule Deer Organization. There's so many uh, NGOs that are active in the state, and they're so and they're full of awesome people that, like I said, are willing to help you. But you'll see a lot of the folks that they might be. Uh, one thing about the hunting community is they can't, they t- kind of tend to be tight lipped to somebody they don't know. Right. But if you can make those connections and show, yeah, I'm interested in doing this.
0: The information just flows. It yeah. does.
2: It's just you got to open that tap. Yep. If you want to get it to open, and best way to do that is, in my opinion, is just show up. Is it's it's like the hog, like like Doug always says with the hog, like there's there's no membership required. You just got to show up, and that and that tap will flow. You just gotta. Yeah.
1: You're in when you show up, right? You're yeah, in yeah. when you show you know, up. That, that's the registration process is attendance. And the same thing. <laughs> like,
2: the same thing with these events. If you're willing to show that, um, you know, if you're coming to an event, whether it's uh, a, a banquet or it's a, uh, say, like, Arizona Mule Deer Organization was doing um, putting up pipe fencing around water tanks to keep cattle out while still allowing wildlife to utilize water resources, um, showing up and, you know, helping out, hey, what can I do? That alone is going to get you in the front door. It's going to get your foot in the door. And it's just going to be that next step um, to, to getting that tangible connection to, to our wildlife.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, I'll tell you what. I think that's a good place to end, to show up. To show up. Um, Jess, before we go, tell us about your podcast.
2: Oh, shameless plug time? Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so I host another podcast called Arizona Field. It's pretty much showing opportunities around the state of Arizona through what I've been up to for the most part. Talk about everything from catching flyhead catfish, uh, chasing spring bear, going to be doing a podcast in the next couple of weeks about our OTC uh, deer, over-the-counter uh, archery deer seasons. Yeah, so just show up and just show up
0: (laughs) awesome just show up i'll vouch for it as well um i've listened to i think just about every episode yeah i've been (laughs) on it too that's that's a particularly good one but no it's informative and entertaining and uh, if you enjoy the outdoors in the airs in arizona i highly recommend you check out arizona field it's a good podcast all right gentlemen i genuinely and i mean it i thank you for the work that you do it's important so keep up the good work
1: you too you guys started it all right (laughs) take care fellas
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that second episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast with Jess and with Doug. And I hope you gained a little insight, learned a little bit about why R3 is so important. You know, it's, it's vital that we have folks out there in the field utilizing this, this precious wildlife resource, um, you know, being part of the system. We need an army of, of people to, to stand up and, and conserve the, this wildlife and wild places. We need minorities. We need women. We need youngsters. We need everybody. This stuff belongs to all of us. So if you disagree with me or you agree with me, please reach out. Let me know at podcast at azwildlife.org. I would love to hear from you. And all criticisms, critiques, comments, they're absolutely welcome. So with that, please tune back in in two weeks for our third episode. Thank you, and take care.